Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio, and joining me as co-hosts today are Linda from Indivisible Acton, Karen from Boston Red Cloaks, and we're just delighted to welcome Representative Liz Miranda uh, to our podcast. This Hi, afternoon. Liz. Hello, Rep. Miranda. Hi. Happy to be here. <laughs> so glad you're here. Yes, so very excited. Representative Liz Miranda entered the Massachusetts State House in 2019 and has just been reelected. Congratulations. To represent the 5th District, uh, 5th Suffolk District, uh, which it includes most parts of Roxbury and Dorchester. You became very involved in activism at a really, really young age. You became involved in uh, opening doors for youth involvement in and empowerment through the arts, social justice, and urban agriculture. Do you have a, do you have a garden? I still suffer at that, but my last um, role before joining the legislature, I was the executive director of the Hawthorne, and they repurposed city-owned vacant land and made it into oh. urban gardens. Mm-hmm. And it was actually two reasons why that was incredibly important because one, we dealt with the fact of lead in our soil and water and a lot of our properties and land in the inner city, but also teaching young people to grow their own food deals with the issues of food insecurity as well. What was the spark that led you to want to run for public office? My story actually doesn't start with a spark. Um, Actually something pretty devastating happened to me and my family. Uh, Three years ago, my youngest brother, Michael, was murdered outside of a Boston nightclub. And I had spent 15 to 20 years, and actually I would go a little further in community organizing work and youth development. You know, I returned the favor after graduating from Wellesley. I could have done any career, but I wanted to come back into my neighborhood and help rebuild my community, which at one point in time was the poorest census block in the Commonwealth. I grew up with 1400 parcels of vacant land. I grew up with environmental pollution that still lingers on today. And so for me, after Michael's death, I was searching. I was in deep grief, like many of us are when we lose loved ones and really searching for you know, what else I could do because I felt I had did enough. You know, I was an executive director of a youth nonprofit, which was my dream job. It was my dream job since 13, since I was 13 and I had been involved with the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative that saved my life. I felt that I was gonna do this for the rest of my life. And I felt, you know, I hit a brick wall. I took my grief and I said, where can we actually help to stop gun violence? And I knew that gun violence was more a symptom of poverty than anything else. Like we were not tending to the fact that many of our inner city communities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And so I was really inspired by sort of trying to find a way to remember my brother and fight for other families like mine who were trying to say, hey, Massachusetts is one of the safest states for gun laws. We have one of the lowest numbers of gun deaths. I think we're number one or number two in the country. But for the 50, 75, 100, or 250 families across the Commonwealth that lose a loved one to guns every year, that's still not good enough. And so I really was inspired by that. And then the fact that Massachusetts, although we're very liberal, had less than 30% women um, and had only had, had, had 12 African-American and Latino women ever serve. Go figure in Massachusetts. Right. I was like, 
Rep China Tyler was the only black woman in the entire legislature. I was like, she needed company. And so I think those two things really fueled me to run. It's, it's, it's making such a difference, but it's such a slow, slow, slow shift in Massachusetts, which we have a lot to talk to you about today. I want to just circle back to what you talked about, about food insecurity, because the Globe just had an article yesterday um, pointing out the hunger rate in the state has increased 59% since 2018. So that problem has only grown and they talk about how it's gotten worse. There's been a 102% increase since COVID hit. So that issue around children, one in five children in Massachusetts is living in a food insecure household. That issue and has it's only gotten worse. Underreported, Jesse. You know, it's severely underreported. Communities like mine, the most minority district in the entire Commonwealth, where the median income is $24,000 people need fifty dollars to $60,000 to actually survive in Boston, and folks are not surviving. And the food insecurity issue, you know, I didn't realize how food insecure I was until I got to college and realized that people weren't eating what I was eating. I, you know, my family survived on bodegas and stores like Save-A-Lot um, that have reduced goods. And the unhealthy food is actually leading to a lot of factors in our poor public health outcomes. You know, I was a teenager by the time we got to stop and shop in our district, you know, they call this food apartheid. And I actually was very thankful. You know, one of the things that came out of COVID that I can really thank COVID is being a terrible disease um, was that it actually highlighted poverty and food insecurity and the ways in which we treat our most vulnerable people, our elders, our young people. Um, and I think that that is awakening call for many in the Commonwealth that people are homeless, they are hungry, and that we've got to take care of them. When you look at the pockets where COVID has hit the worst, of course, you see the correlation between lack of access to fair wage, lack of access to safe housing, lack of access to housing, lack of access to food, lack of access to healthcare, And of course, you see the hardest hit areas. Then you've got these pockets that are colored green on the COVID map, more affluence. You know, it's just, it's just the opposite. It's really challenging. And I think for people who care about social justice, you're election and re-election matters. Part of what we've seen in championing some specific legislation is, wow, <laughs> my person in my town might care, but unless everybody cares about the issue, we don't make any progress in this state. Yeah, we don't make any progress unless we elect the people that have the values that we want to see in our representation. Um, you know, it's a very important. There's every issue is handled at the state house, and every issue is important. Um, and trying to get people to negotiate, um, and, you know, it's really interesting. You know, they said that we are increased in the number of women, uh, so maybe we'll get finally over 30% um, of the state house, which is really exciting because I think where women are, particularly diverse women uh, and diverse women who think differently about reproductive justice. Um, is going to lead us to better outcomes. You know, you got to have the people there to actually take those hard votes and use their political will and their lived experiences to make a difference for women across the Commonwealth. And we saw during this election quite a number of people run for office talking about the kind of values we're just sharing here. What was this election cycle like for you up close? You know, I didn't have an opponent, which was very different because in my first time around, I had a very grassroots campaign here in Boston where I was running against four men. 
and I was running against four men and I was probably the least politically astute. I didn't believe uh, that I could run for office because I didn't see anybody that came from community actually being front and center in the ways that I wished that I had seen. Um, so in this election cycle, I chose to go to Detroit, Michigan and stump uh, for Biden-Harris because I knew so much was at stake. And I actually knew that communities of color would be incredibly important because we are the base of the Democratic um, Party, particularly Black women. And so I was saying, you know, I didn't have to do much work here in Massachusetts. And I said, you know, I could go to New Hampshire like everyone else, but could I actually make a difference in places like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Michigan? And Michigan came through. And one of the places I was so happy, you know, and I landed in a plane 8 p.m. that night. Before my election, I went around and did signs because I don't have a staff, uh, a campaign staff, and put up signs and went to the polls. And so this election cycle has also been filled with a lot of anxiety. I have felt strongly, um, you know, and people are, you know, you know, have to respect people's opinions, but you know, my district knows where I stand. But I, I literally felt that like the anxiety that I felt, the anger uh, that our president had put kids in cages had nominated people that were incredibly conservative, what he's done to fuel mass incarceration and racial injustice in this country, I couldn't stay home. So that's what I did and I feel incredibly proud. Although I'm looking at my TV like many people like, come on, come on, let's do this. <laughs> I was so incredibly proud that, you know, um, Vice President Biden, hopefully President Biden chose Kamala Harris because of the black yes. women. Yes. Um, that I know have been fueling the Dem Democratic Party since the beginning of its founding. So we want to shift a little bit over, and I know, Karen, you're going to pick up asking a little bit about uh, some legislation here, the Roe Act. The Roe Act is ever on our minds. Uh, we were all at the um, uh, Sexual Health Lobby Day in January 2019, and then we were again at the hearings. That, and that went on for hours. And Jessie herself stayed right from the beginning to the very end of it. I don't know how she got home. So what was it like for you? What was it like for you to hear the, the pros? What was it like for you to hear the, the cons? Because some of those cons were pretty intense. What was that like for you? You know, you mentioned earlier that I serve on the judiciary. And I believe I'm the only non-attorney on the judiciary. And I also was the co-filer of the Safe Communities Act. And I will never... Uh, I don't care how long I have in the state house as a legislator, forget both the Safe Communities Act hearing and the Roe Act hearing. They went well into the evening, um, wee hours, and heard a disproportionate number of pro folks, but to hear the cons. I was born and raised as a Catholic, and I think that one of the framing issues around reproductive justice, as we often don't talk about as, a, as an issue of access and care and racial justice. And I know for sure in our communities uh, where folks don't have the means and the access to the type of reproductive care that they need, it's the reason why we have black women dying in this country two to four, four times the rate of white women during birthing their birthing journeys because we're not paying attention to this, what I like to call a continuum. And so one of the first things that I did when I came to the state house was say that I was a Catholic for choice and made it okay 
for people to have this intense dialogue, even in my community, where folks were saying often that abortion was sort of a white college woman's issue, a white feminist issue. And it is not, you know, that it, we, we can't in this country just work on protecting Roe, on passing the Roe Act here in Massachusetts. So we'll be woefully insufficient. These things are all part of what I believe is a platform to not only allow women and give them the right to have agency over their own bodies, but also look at the racial injustice that has happened throughout our history here in America around our bodies, particularly for immigrant women, poor women, and women of color. And so when I was sitting in that seat, uh, much of that was very graphic. Uh, many women shared and birthing families shared what it's like to actually have to go to another state to get the reproductive care that they needed. But one thing that wasn't discussed enough was the fact that many of those women may have had um, the agency, they had to get funding from their families, they had to tap out their savings. But there's women in our communities that could have never you know, never did that. And I was sitting there, actually, there was this moment, I just want to share this. I have a sister who's had challenges, um, you know, being able to keep her children. She's had many miscarriages. And I was sitting there and there was a moment that I actually teared because uh, about three years ago, I also um, helped my sister deliver a 20 week old baby, Mila, and the baby didn't survive. And my sister was in danger of losing her own life. And it brought me to a place where my mom, my mom had had multiple C-sections. My friend had had a tool left in her and had to be reopened. And looking at the history of injustice to the care, and I was sitting there saying, wow, I, I know we need to pass the ROAC, but so much of this conversation needs to even go deeper into the ways in which we have not protected um, the women and the reproductive, the reproductive rights in this country. And so that was a very emotional time for me. And I know the Red Cloaks were, were there and I um, actually traveled to New York City with Representative Trom Nguyen, who's Asian American, to also kind of figure out this way of how do we actually get the message out about reproductive justice in our communities, in our racial minorities in the Commonwealth. It's really helpful because we've had people talk about reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, reproductive justice, and in reproductive justice, um, Sister Song is a group of Black women who really helped redefine how we can talk about what you just described, that continuum of care, because it's not just people need abortions and that solves all the problems, it's it's access to It's a education. human right issue. And that's the thing that we're, you know, America is thinking we're so far ahead of everyone in the world and we're not. We're not, we're not providing the type of access to care, particularly reproductive care. Um, when you talk about, when I talk about this continuum, people are like, are oh, you a doctor? I'm not a doctor, right? <laughs> but the understanding, you know, even in my community, when you talk about the linkages between poverty and other outcomes, uh, one part of my neighborhood actually had the highest STD rate in the Commonwealth for many years. And that led to other issues, the highest teen pregnancy rate. These things are done because there's a lack of education. 
There's a lack of access to the doctors and the community health centers that provide this work. There's a lack of access to the Planned Parenthood that is doing this work beyond abortions to actually provide, you know, the birth control that we actually need in our communities and the reproductive care. You know, I remember being a young woman and not being able to talk to my mother. My mom was a teen mom. And when I got to be that age, I couldn't have conversations with her about my body or sexual activity because it was sort of a faux pas to not talk about that in our community. Our immigrant families have issues sort of talking about this stuff and it's leading to very destructive outcomes for our communities. Well, and add to that the religious aspect. My family is also Catholic and Jewish, but the Catholicism doesn't give you any vocabulary. There are some faith groups where they actually, this shocked me when you learn about it, there's faith groups where they teach about sexuality right there in church. And that's not the case necessarily for everybody. And we can't pray away incest. We can't pray away sexual violence. And we can't pray away the fact that women are in danger many times when they're giving birth, if they've been given a diagnosis a, a fatal fetal syndrome, you know, you have women that are maybe forced to go into birthing something that's incredibly traumatic, incredibly traumatic. And we're asking them to go through this thing because we don't, we haven't even legislated appropriately. And here's the problem. We shouldn't even have to be legislated. I think it should be illegal to be thinking about how we're, how we're legislating faith and we're legislating um, agency and bodily autonomy um, for women in our country. Also, can we unpack a little bit more about systemic racism? Because I've been learning more and doing more research, but to unpack this a little bit, the fact is you already mentioned there are worse outcomes for black women, period, in maternal health. Women die more, they have uh, higher instances of other health complications during pregnancy. So pregnancy may in the, in the movies look like nothing, but actually it's, it's an impact on your whole body. And if you don't have equal access to healthcare, it's problematic, but part of what is very disturbing, people may not realize, there are a lot of doctors who genuinely are racist and they do not believe that black people experience pain the same way as white people. And, and I see so, you read that sister song before, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, to not put legislation in to give people access to doctors is leaving things the way they are and the way they are is harmful. And it's more harmful to some people than others. People who don't have economic means, people who don't have healthcare, black people, people of color, indigenous people. It is. It's just factual. And, you know, I'm glad that you're sticking with the facts because so much of the debate around Roe, so much of the debate about immigration and criminal justice reform is not based on facts, right? And one of the things that I learned when I first got in the state house, I didn't have a blueprint, right? I heard uh, in my first week there, uh, Representative Haddad, Speaker Pro Tem, had March of Dimes come in and give a presentation to freshmen female legislators about the crisis, really the public health crisis. And here we have the best hospitals in the world. And for most of my life, I was taught that if you had a great education, check, I checked that, I went to Wellesley. If I had amassed uh, economic means because of my education, I made three times more than my mother makes. Um, just in the short period of four years, I turned 21 and 22 and was making more than my mother had even in raising me. 
if I had lived in a zip code, now this is one challenging, like I lived in Roxbury my entire life, 02119, and our zip code is literally killing us. But if you had women that even had a great education, lived in great zip codes, made a lot of money, the terms in which we're looking at racial justice and particularly maternal care, it did not change. It did not change in 50 years. And so people started to say, if it hadn't changed in 50 years, if these sort of economic mobility, uh, geographic mobility, um, and having access to the best care didn't save Black women, what was it? And what they found is that the only way to explain it was the racism because our providers didn't have the cultural competence to understand, because that's not taught in medical schools, right? In this country, we've had constant challenges with sterilization, hysterectomies, um, not listening to Black women because they can handle pain better. When my sister lost her child, and I remember this vividly, she said, I told my doctor I wasn't feeling well. And she said for me to take Tylenol and take a nap. You know, my sister is probably without her child going through this traumatic experience because her doctor, who was a woman, right? And one of the best hospitals in Boston did not take that seriously because it's like, oh, you just, you're just six months along, just take some time along, go to sleep. My sister could have died, you know? Okay. And so I think it's important for us to realize that this is why I've been able to weave this maternal justice conversation, this reproductive and racial justice, because they're the same. And I was heard saying this a couple of months ago, and I'm so proud of the legislature because we now have this commission that's gonna be black women led and centered around maternal justice in Massachusetts. Because even though Massachusetts doesn't have sort of New York or the deep South numbers, we're still dying two times the rate here in Massachusetts. And I don't wanna die. You know, and this is very real and very personable that, you know, I don't have any children yet. And I want the best for me and my families. And when we were um, sharing about the commission, even doulas, making sure that's my other bill around increasing doula care and medical access. We want to make sure that anyone who wants the right to have uh, a child in Massachusetts, and we're looking at LGBTQ families, also have the same access is incredibly important. Uh, Rep. Miranda, would you just remind us what the doula uh, provisions are, please? So what we're trying to do is pass legislation. We went very close um, to look to make sure that Mass Health here in Massachusetts could actually provide doula care um, to the women who cannot afford it. Right now, a doula is someone that helps someone through their birthing journey. Uh, many times they help you find your voice and connect with you and your doctors, uh, make sure that you're getting the best access to prenatal and postnatal and postpartum care that you can have. What we have here though in Massachusetts is that if you can't afford one, you don't get one. I learned about the rates of preterm babies, uh, the number of C-sections, um, folks actually being harmed during childbirth was happening in three places really in Massachusetts. Inner city communities like Roxbury and Dorchester, places like New Bedford and Fall River and the South Coast and South Shore, and places like Worcester and Springfield. And so if you see the same communities impacted by COVID, the same communities impacted by poverty are the same communities that are being impacted by this reproductive justice. This is all one and the same. We cannot fight for just one thing. When we're fighting for reproductive justice, we're also fighting for immigrant rights. 
right? We're also fighting for racial justice. We're also fighting for economic mobility. Uh, I think we're making huge strides. I mean, even seeing that the Speaker of the House and Senate President Spilker announced the other day that trying to find what we can do in Massachusetts to fight against what is going to happen, you know, or could potentially happen at the federal government. We have a conservative bench now in the Supreme Court. Um, in the Supreme Court. So we're going to be fighting. This is a long fight. This is not just a one-shot deal here. I grew up in New Bedford. My, You're Portuguese, right? Portuguese, yes. Okay, Verdian. <laughs> right, and, and my best, one of my best friends is the doula. And so I know what that experience is like. And, and yeah, she gets paid for it. And it's only, you know, people who can afford her. Um, but I want to bring it back to the Roe Act and, and the Roe Act's in the Judiciary Committee. I've actually enjoyed my experience, you know, working under and with um, um, Chairwoman Cronin um, in the vice chairs of that committee have actually been a really learning experience for me, understanding um, how our laws impact people. It's been an actually great experience and I want to thank her because we had, you know, we all had the chance to speak with the chairwoman um, right before COVID and thinking about where we stood on the Roe Act. And, you know, one of the things we had a robust conversation was about Catholicism and the way that religion has played a role in sort of masking um, the medical needs and the agency that women and the freedom that we deserve to have over our bodies. And I think she came away from something great from that. I came away from something great for that. And I'm just waiting and I'm ready. The people that suffer the most are the people that are most vulnerable. And so if we look, if we don't pass the Roe Act, if we don't fight like hell um, to make sure that Roe is protected nationally, if we don't make the connections between maternal care and access to care and abortion, which is healthcare, by the way, we're gonna fail here. So we need to be united united across disciplines, across justice and equity to really fight. And I'm actually, I've got my fingers crossed, but I think, I think we're gonna go. I think, you know, it may look a little different, but I still think that it's gonna get past this session. We're looking forward to that day and love, love getting to meet with you. And we would love to have you come back on another time. Yeah, I'm excited. And thank you to the Red Cloaks. I see you everywhere. I haven't had a chance to really connect, but you guys are my sheroes, you know, fighting. <laughs> Fighting for one woman is fighting for all women. And I'm looking forward to being a partner with you all. Fantastic. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much. You rock. Thank you so much to all of you. <laughs> Bye, Bye for this. Thank you so much.